House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm the man at the controls making all the mistakes. Have a warm. <laughs> Uh, now, in the East Coast, we've got Mr. David Whiskey Martino. <laughs> Present. <laughs> making the, I'm making the cocktails. Yeah, well, it's about time, you know. Um, well, um, now we're, we're back here, and we're doing a very in- – this is another uh, interesting story. We've had some great, great uh, authors on the last couple of weeks telling us some really good stories. I, uh, I love kind of uh, – True stories, especially ones that happened like 100 years ago or something. So this is kind of fun. Um, so first of all, we've got uh, our guest, who's uh, an author of several books, uh, Glenn Stout. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Now, um, before we get into your into the, the newer book that you're promoting, um, let's talk about you. Um, now, you've, you were a sports writer, if I understand correctly. Yeah, most of my work, uh, writing work, has been in sports, not entirely, but primarily. I mean, I did a book with the, uh, uh, an oral history with the guys who cleaned up Ground Zero and some other things like that. But primarily, I've been known for writing about sports, particularly baseball. Well, were you, so were you writing for some newspapers and things like that? No, I've been a freelancer for almost 30 years. Uh, I started out, I was actually a librarian when I... uh, (laughs) got into writing, uh, anything to get out of the library. And, uh, but the library was actually kind of formative in, uh, in my writing career because it was while I was working at the Boston Public Library that I, I stumbled across a story that, uh, about the Boston Red Sox manager in 1907 who committed suicide during spring training. And the story I read about it said that he did so because of the pressures of managing and I thought at the time, well, if that was the case, there should be an entire cemetery of dead Red Sox managers. <laughs> and, and I started just for my own entertainment, I started researching the story in the old microfilm newspapers. And I discovered why he killed himself. He'd gotten married the year before, and his wife was pregnant, and he had a girlfriend, and she was blackmailing him. Um, and I thought, gee, that's an interesting story. And... Um, I got a book about how to be a freelance writer. I pitched it to a couple of magazines. Uh, one of them bought it, and uh, I've never been without an assignment since. But that taught me, you know, really how to do historical nonfiction writing because the newspaper is the primary resource. And uh, by and large, I've worked off that for the last, uh, you know, 30 years or so. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting career. I, I, how do you... How do you see yourself in it now, like, or how do you see the uh, career of of journalism now with with such? Uh... Well, I'm glad I'm not starting out. Let me <laughs> let me say that. Um, you know, I, I I do have a lot of younger writer friends, uh, and times are very very tough. I mean, when I was starting out, there were a lot of places to sell stories, magazines, some newspapers. A lot of magazines you've never heard of that don't exist anymore. Uh, and now, of course, most of those have gone out of business. The market is extraordinarily tight. Uh, I'm glad that I've been doing uh, book work for much of the last 20 years rather than trying to sell individual stories. Um, but it's tough. But, uh, you know, the thing is, is that writers are creative people, and this business makes no sense. But <laughs> that hasn't stopped people from producing great work. And, uh, you know, that's what I tell everyone that approaches me about it. I said, hey, it makes no sense, but if this is something you feel you have to do, you know, let's talk. Maybe I can help you, uh, you know, negotiate uh, your way through this this, uh, dying business, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Let me help you to the graveyard. Yeah, Um, you know. Well, yeah, but you you were doing sports, so that's very particular – what made you get into doing a, a like a crime book? I guess I guess it's all nonfiction and it's all well, yeah, it's all historical story. nonfiction. You know, most because most of my sports work has been histories, and so the process is very much the same. 
And when I came across the story of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, I was actually working on another book uh, called Young Woman in the Sea, which is a biography of Gertrude Ederle, the first woman to swim the English Channel, uh, which incidentally is, is placed with Disney Plus and should go into production by the end of the year as a movie. But I was researching that book, and I found all these headlines about Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid. And I'm a curious person, and I was intrigued by the name, and I started reading the stories. And this was back in, like, 2006. And the more I read about them, the more intrigued I was. You know, and I'd come across the Gertrude Ederly story the same way. I was researching another book, and I found stories about Gertrude Ederly. Why had I never heard about her? And, um, you know, so I just followed my curiosity, wrote that book, came across Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, and once again, just followed my curiosity, uh, started poking around at the story, and uh, discovered there was more there than I thought, and uh, there was probably enough for a book. Well, that's interesting. But, you know, what, what makes you go uh, to write a book then? Like, if you, if you find the headlines, like you said, and you're sort of, oh, this is interesting, you know, read some of them, and you kind of go, but what makes you jump over and decide, I'm going to write this? When I start seeing that the story resonates, that it's not just inclusive to itself, but it speaks to other things. It, it speaks to a time period, in this case, the jazz age, the roaring 20s. It speaks to, uh, you know, popular gangster culture. Uh, one of the things I, I say is I think that, you know, I call Richard and Margaret Whittemore the original gangster couple because, in a sense, I think they were the template for a lot of the gangster films that followed in the 1930s. A lot of the, I discovered that a lot of the reporters who were writing for the tabloids in the 1920s, guys like Mark Hellinger, later went on in the 1930s and afterwards to become screenwriters and Hollywood producers. And they wrote the screenplays and produced the gangster films of the 1930s. And there are echoes of the story of Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid in all those movies. You know, it was just a, they provide a great intersection into a, a really interesting time period in this country when, you know, America, post-World War I, post the Spanish influenza, with the intrusion of prohibition, really changed very, very quickly. After World War I, the U.S. was electrified. You had movies everywhere. You could go out at night. Um, everybody had telephones. Almost everybody had cars. The world that had changed very, very rapidly, and it's very much the modern world that we live in today, was created in the 1920s. It was the age of celebrity. Media started to become very, very big. So, you know, once I saw that it kind of resonated outside of just two people committing crimes, that's when I started to think, hey, I think this is a book. And then you discover as you do more research that the secondary characters are just as interesting. I mean, at one point, uh, Richard Whittemore's attorney is Edgar Allan Poe, a descendant of the Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, you know, you kind of can't make this stuff up when you start seeing how the, how, how the intersections with uh, other parts of American history just start to build up. How is it doing the research? Like, I, I've been working on a book from the 1920s, but out of Germany. Um, and it's been it's been a lot of work, and getting the research has been most um, I don't want to say diff yeah it's been very difficult sure. it's 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 a, it is a lot of, a lot more than normal. Um, how is it for doing that out of the states? Well, the primary research source for a book like this are newspapers of the era. Um, fortunately, many of them are available online. The microfilm has been scanned, and you can use services like newspapers.com or genealogy.com to find the stories online. However, you can't ignore the fact that a lot of newspapers are not available online. They're only available on microfilm, and there's no way to get around sitting in a library for hours and days scrolling through microfilm. Two of the key newspapers for telling this story, in fact, the Baltimore News and the Baltimore Post, are not available online. In fact, the only library that has them is in Baltimore. 
So I had to go to Baltimore, and I spent a week staying in a hotel across the street from the library, walking over the library when it opened and leaving when the library closed and scrolling through microfilm and making copies all day long of the reporting on on Richard and Margaret Whittemore. Because, to, you know, the, the, the challenge is to take what could be a one- or two-dimensional story and make it three-dimensional, make it more cinematic so the so the reader can see it. And that's done by taking multiple reports about, say, for instance, a singular crime, uh, a, a jewelry heist, which is the Whitmore's specialty, and you might read five, six, seven, or eight accounts of the same crime, because, of course, back then, you had every city had multiple newspapers, sometimes five, six, seven, eight newspapers, all reporting at the same time, and every account will give you an additional detail. So when you combine all those counts, accounts together, it's almost like a 3D printer. You build up, the, you layer the story on top of each other. One will tell you the make of the car they used to get away. Another might say what one of the gangsters said when they, when they went into the jewelry store. A mother, another might say how they tied up the people who were in the jewelry store. Another might talk about how they pistol whipped someone or what the gangsters said as they were leaving. You put all these accounts together, and all of a sudden you have that cinematic, that three-dimensional portrait, and you have a story, you have a narrative, rather than just a simple report. That's the process, whether I'm writing about baseball, you know, ground ball, a shortstop, double play, but if you read five accounts of that double play, you might find out that the shortstop bobbled the ball, that the, the base runner, you know, kicked the base after he was called out and started to argue with the umpire. All of a sudden, you have a scene there. It's the same thing when I'm writing about true crime. Yeah, I think for me it's because I have to translate everything from German. and. Uh... Well, that would be a challenge, yeah. <laughs> it's been a lot of work and, you know, takes my eyes out. Wow. So why, why do you think um, it was Bonnie and Clyde that got such, you know, you know the movies and the glorification sure. and stuff, whereas Margaret and Richard were before, and as well you say kind of the, the template? What, 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 was, what was it about them that didn't make um, Warren Beatty? Well, that, <laughs> yeah, that puzzled me for a while because, you know, Margaret and Richard, they were, Richard were, way more successful. They stole up to $15 million in today's money. Bonnie and Clyde never stole more than $1,900 in a single crime, and usually much less. They were much smarter. They were much better looking, Margaret and Richard were. Margaret was in a beauty contest, for crying out loud, as Miss Baltimore. But I eventually kind of figured out it was a product of the time. You know, by the 1930s, you have newsreels. So because you have newsreels and they're showing, you know, news in between showings of motion pictures, they could put Bonnie and Clyde on screen. You also had the FBI, which went from being the Bureau of Investigation in the 1920s, which was basically powerless and didn't do much investigating, to J. Edgar Hoover's FBI of the 1930s. And one of the strategies which Hoover was a genius about was that he made criminals famous. By making criminals famous, he was then able to go to Congress and ask for more money. That's what took place with the gangsters of the 1930s, the Dillingers and the Babyface Nelsons and the Barrow Gang. In the 1920s, that wasn't possible. So, you know, in that little less than a decade from the 20s to the 30s, talking pictures came into being, radio went from being, you know, nascent uh, media to one that was ubiquitous and everywhere. You could report on the Barrow Gang, you know, another crime by the Barrow Gang. You couldn't do that with Richard and Margaret Whittemore. They were only in the newspapers. So they got kind of left one-dimensional as simply a newspaper story that was quickly forgotten because they weren't animated by the radio, by the newsreels, they weren't promoted by the FBI. So they were kind of overlooked over time, even though for a brief period in time, they were as famous as any couple in America. I mean, they were like, you know, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian of the 1920s. For about six months, 
They were in every newspaper, front page of the New York Times about 40 times, coast-to-coast coverage, and then times changed. I think another factor, too, is that, you know, the roaring 20s ended, and we went into the Depression. And focus, for a while, people didn't want to look at those aspects of the 1920s that might not have been as pleasant. How did they get their nicknames, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid? Yeah, well, <laughs> Tiger Girl got her name when they, she and Richard were first arrested in 1921. This is before they really formed the gang that was successful. And uh, they were arrested in Philadelphia. Cops got a tip that they were hanging out. They'd committed some small crimes along with some other people. And they were hiding in an apartment building. And the police busted in. And when they busted in on them, somebody hit the lights and there was a shootout. Well, come to find out, Margaret had been the one who passed out the guns when the lights were out. And Tiger Girl was a name that the newspapers had been giving any young flapper gone bad at the time. Um, it was the, the, the name of a movie starring Lillian Gish. It was the name of a popular song. But young flappers gone bad had been called Tiger Girls beginning on the West Coast. A woman killed her mother because mom wouldn't let her go dancing. And they called her Tiger Girl because it was both vicious and innocent, you know, sweet and sexy. Candy Kid, he got that name once, he was a, once they were both arrested later for committing the jewel heists. And I think that was more a product of the press. Yes, there was a, a song called The Candy Kid. And Candy Kid was slang for a sweet talker, and Richard certainly was. He was very glib. He was a bit of a chameleon. He could fit in with high society. He could, you know, he could go lowbrow. He could go highbrow. But when the tabloid press got a hold of Tiger Girl, I think they saw the possibility to create a story. And by dubbing him Candy Kid, suddenly they had a romance. These weren't just two gangsters to criminals now you had a romantic coupling and a very evocative one tiger girl and candy kid the devoted woman and you know her husband who was doing all this for her and that's the story uh, that they sold while richard was going on trial while they were investigating the crime after they were being arrested they sold this romantic coupling and and you know it made a great headline it certainly got my attention and I think it got the attention of readers back then. That was a story you could sell on the corner, the romance, every day of the week, whether much was really happening in the investigation or the lead-up to the trials or not. The romance was there. And quite frankly, you know, Margaret was a flapper. Richard was young. They were in their early 20s. Young people in America at the time responded to that. They looked at Richard and Margaret not with disdain, they looked at them with jealousy. This was a lawless era of prohibition when everybody was breaking the law. And the cops were on the take, and the politicians were looking the other way. And if you wanted to succeed, you had to go out and get it on your own. That's what they saw in Richard and Margaret, and, and that's what they wanted. It was the, maybe they didn't have the, the, the chutzpah to do it themselves, but, boy, they really loved reading about people who did. That's, you know, it's interesting how that is and, and how uh, a lot of these um, gangsters were kind of celebrities. And actually, they still are to this day. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when Richard uh, went on trial, he went on two trials, one in Buffalo and one in, uh, in Baltimore, the courthouses were packed. And it wasn't packed with people who, you know, were waiting for him to be convicted. They were packed with fans, you know, young flappers dressed to the nines who just wanted to see him. And, you know, the press fed into that. I mean, when Margaret showed up in court, she was written about as if she was walking down a runway modeling clothes. Everything she wore, whether her jewelry, her dress, her hat, her coat, they, they wrote about that in detail. It was like, you know, they were at the opening of a movie. And, you know, you want to see what she's wearing. Will they kiss? You know, will, will Tiger Girl cry? Will she faint? Um, you know, they fell into, they really fell for the entire romance aspect of their story. It's pretty amazing. So now you were saying, so they were, um, they were really into stealing diamonds and precious gems. So right. they, ha they had a different 
way of, of, of gain, gaining their money. But you, you mentioned that they've um, stole over a million dollars in, in less than a year, and that's, what, 10 million today or something. Yeah, like 10 to 15 million, somewhere around there. So with that much money, they, they must have had an incredible lifestyle. They did. They did not think about tomorrow. They might have thought as far as tonight. Um, you know, it's funny because at various times they were asked why they did it. And Tiger Girl's answer was, well, he promised me good times and all these fabulous clothes. Like, why wouldn't I go for it? Yeah. And when Richard was asked, he kind of laughed and he said, easy money. You know, they were working class kids. They saw access to success and material goods as inaccessible to them unless they went out and got it. And that's what fueled them. They made more than enough money that had they been interested in the picket fence and, you know, all that, they could have set it aside and they could have, have had that. That's not what they were interested in. This was the 1920s. This was the time to have fun. They wanted to go to the cabarets. They wanted to go to restaurants. They wanted brand-new cars, fur coats, tailored suits, and they got all that. Uh, you know, there was a club in New York, the Club Chantee, that was populated by a lot of film stars, a lot of Broadway stars, the most popular jazz band of the time, and Richard had the best table there. He was known to go in there sometimes and drop thousands of dollars in one night. He'd tip a cigarette girl $100. He'd buy drinks for the house. He would have the band play the same song five and six times, and they would because... He had more money than anybody there. Uh, you know, they were candles burning at both ends. And they, you know, my wife is a special ed teacher. And she talks about the frontal lobe not being developed in, in, you know, adolescent kids. I think we can make the case that, you know, Richard and Margaret's frontal lobes, which, which controlled, you know, foresight and thinking ahead, they were not fully developed, you know. They weren't thinking ahead. I, I talked to someone and they, they said they kept on waiting in the book for, Richard and Margaret to have a conversation like, we can't continue to live like this. They never had that conversation. Uh, until they were caught, they were acting as if it would go on forever. And they all became uh, drug users, didn't they? They spent a lot of money on, on, on narcotics. Yes, they did. The whole gang uh, was involved in the drug trade. I'm not sure to what degree Margaret was, but much more than people think, Marijuana use was pretty common back then, so was cocaine and heroin, and one of the things the gang would do after they committed one of these crimes and, and got their take, and all of a sudden they're walking around with, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in their pocket, is they'd often go to an opium den. Um, most of the male gang members were morphine addicts, and they'd go to an opium den and spend 24 hours there right after they'd robbed. They might be hyped up on cocaine when they're doing the robberies. Um, you know, and then there was the alcohol and the drinking, which is what they were doing in the nightclubs all night. You know, this was a time, you know, coming out of World War I and the pandemic and the Depression, people, young people in particular, just wanted to cut loose and have fun. Victims. Like, who, who, where did they get the, um, the jewels and the diamonds from? Was it banks or was it... Uh, jewelers, or was it actually just rich people? Primarily it was jewelers. Uh, Richard had been taken under the, under the wing of these two brothers when he was incarcerated at the Maryland State Penitentiary, the Kramer brothers. And the Kramers were already legends in Europe where they had developed the can opener, which was a method of breaking into a safe where you could essentially peel it open like a sardine can. They had ended up being caught after they came to America and while they were in prison, they realized that when they got out, they couldn't do that anymore because the cops would know it was them. It was their signature move. They met Richard in prison, and they decided, let's use the same amount of planning that we did to peel safes, to steal money, to steal jewels from the jewelers. And they looked at Richard and decided Richard could be their human can opener. He could be their muscle. He was young. He was ambitious. He was tough. He was unafraid. And they decided to create this gang together. The Kramers would do all the planning. They would, you know, scope the place out ahead of time. They might go in and ask to see a watch or ask to see a brooch. 
All the while, they're paying attention to where the staff is. They're looking to see if the safe is kept open when the store is opening and they're putting goods out on the on display or when the store is closed, when they're taking them and putting them back in the safe. And they would time everything out to the second. The reason they went after jewelry is that it was so lucrative. This is the 1920s. People had a lot of money to spend, a lot of cash, particularly those people who were involved in prohibition. And they weren't shy about showing it off. Uh, the newspapers at the time sometimes would run columns of just listings of lost jewelry, diamonds and platinum and emeralds and everything you can imagine. Because if you had something like that, then you wore it. You showed it off. This was to demonstrate to everyone that you'd made it. So it was a lot safer than going into a bank where you usually had armed guards. Uh, you know, it was there for the taking. The Kramers knew the merchandise because they knew the, the jewelry industry. They would ingratiate themselves into the local jewelry industry. So when they went to break into a place, they weren't picking out a jewel store at random. They already knew what the guy had, and that made it a lot easier to sell it. They'd already made arrangements with a fence, so they didn't have to find someone to fence the goods. That was set up ahead of time. So they had almost turned it into an assembly line process, which was very, very unique at the time, and it was a process they could repeat over and over and over again, and they did. How, how was the policing then? Like, did, did the police, um, were they really organized and together and they did a really good job and they could, uh, did they even notice this couple that, becoming so wealthy and, and all that? Were they suspects? Well, they didn't, they didn't notice them for a while. I mean, it was an extraordinarily easy time to be a criminal because identity was so impossible to confirm. I mean, you, fingerprinting was just coming into vogue to identify someone after the fact. It really wasn't an investigative tool yet. Um, if you were a detective, say, in New York at the time, you spent a lot of your time studying what was known as the rogues gallery. And that was simply a book of page after page after page of known criminals. You became a successful detective if you could recall faces. And detectives would hang out at uh, train stations, and they'd hang out in hotel lobbies, and they would scan faces to see if they recognized someone. Uh, the police in New, in New York or anywhere else didn't know that a single gang was operating uh, for most of the time that the Whitmore gang was, was doing their business. They only got on to them when they got a tip from Cleveland that one of the gang members, a guy named Shuffles Goldberg, he was called Shuffles because he had this strange walk and he was very distinctive looking. He was very short and he had these gigantic bat ears. Um, the gang would sometimes go to Cleveland in between jobs, and the Cleveland police tipped off New York that they thought Goldberg was up to something and he was in New York. Well, the New York detectives went looking for Goldberg. They found him in a hotel, and they just decided to tail him to see what he was up to. They discovered that he would meet this smart, well-dressed couple at one of New York's most exclusive apartment buildings, and they thought, gee, that's strange. So they started tailing them. They didn't know it was Richard and Margaret at the time. Through Richard and Margaret, they saw Margaret meet up with, lo and behold, the Kramer brothers. Well, they recognized the Kramer brothers. Then they started putting two and two together. And eventually, one of the policemen, while they were watching Richard Whittemore in the Club Shantee, had a light bulb go off in his head, and he said, he said that's Dick Whitmore. Baltimore wants him. Then they started putting it all together. If Whitmore was hooked up with the Kramers, and look at how these people are living, they're obviously up to no good. And uh, finally one night Richard got uh, way too drunk. The cops were tailing him. He spotted the tail. There was a screaming car chase in midtown Manhattan, the wrong way up, one-way streets, all that. And they finally captured Richard Whittemore. Then they decided to round up the rest of the gang, and then John Coughlin, the chief of detectives, he was actually considered a, a straight shooter, meaning he was not on the take. 
Uh, and he was a master of getting criminals to talk and getting them to squeal on one another. And that's what he did. He'd interview one member of the gang and basically tell them that, uh, you know, the other guy said you did it. And then you go to the other guy and say, hey, we just talked to Anthony Palladino, and he said you did everything. And they caved. They all squealed on each other. And, and that's how they ended up, uh, you know, ended up finally being prosecuted for a number of crimes. It's, you know, it has it all. It, sh it could be a movie easy. Uh, oh, it's, it's <laughs> so cinematic. Um, you know, it's, I think I've watched it in my head a hundred times. I mean, I came across this story in 2006. I tried to sell this book in 2009, but it was on the heels of the 2008 recession. And uh, we got a lot of interest, but nobody was buying books then. And then I sat on the story. I had Google alerts for Richard and Margaret Whittemore for the last 15 years. And um, I just kept on thinking, this is such a great story. This is just so cinematic, so compelling that I kept poking around at it. I just wouldn't let it go. And finally, about three years ago, you know, said to my agents, this is the only book I want to do. Um, and was fortunate enough to get a contract and, you know, at this point, we've we've been probed by Hollywood already. We'll see if anything comes of it. But uh, I think it's it's made for the movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, how did that couple meet? Like, they didn't seem like the same type of people. Well, so where, where did they come across each other? Well, they both were raised in the 15th Ward in Baltimore, in West Baltimore, um, which was adjacent to Sandtown which in segregated Baltimore was the African-American part of town. So they were very, very working class, living in a neighborhood that you probably, if you were white, didn't want to live in at the time. Margaret was uh, from an immigrant family. Her parents were German, and her father died um, when she was still in grammar school. She had to go to work as a telephone operator. Uh, her mother had to go to work as a charwoman. She always lived near Richard Whittemore, and they had been childhood sweethearts, puppy love. Richard's family, although they were considered a good family and had been involved in a lot of social service in Baltimore in the past, his father really hadn't made it. His father was a working man. So they were living kind of under the accustomed standard of the family. Richard was in trouble from about age 10, he ended up being sent away basically for playing hooky at about age 10 and got spit out from the penal system about 10 years later, a full-blown criminal. But in between, he escaped any number of times. He'd go back to the neighborhood. He'd see Margaret again. Each time he came back, he was a little older, a little tougher, a little better looking. So was she. They were older. And this childhood romance blossomed until they married each other in 1921. By that point, Richard had decided that the straight life wasn't working. He couldn't get a job. And one week after their wedding, he broke into a house just down the block from where his father lived, was spotted by a neighbor. The cops knew who he was. He was arrested. And one week after being married, he was thrown in prison for five years, leaving Margaret, you know, back living with mom again, but she stuck with him, and, uh, you know, and and he stuck with her, more or less, for the rest of their lives. Did they ever um, have any children or an attempt to have children, or that wasn't? You know, there's, there's one story. I have it in the notes of the book. Richard told people that they'd had a child who'd been killed in an auto accident. Um, Margaret said that was not true, and I couldn't find any evidence of it, so I didn't put that in the book. They may have, uh, you know, spec to speculate, maybe he did have a child, maybe it wasn't with her, um, because he played the field a little bit. She seemed to put up with that. Uh, but I just can't say for certain. They did leave no heirs. Margaret, much later, did remarry and did have a child. Um, but uh, Richard himself uh, had no children and neither did his brother or his sister, so there are no, uh, there's no Whitmore ancestors out there that, uh, you know, that can tell the story of their, you know, great uncle or their uh, uh, great-great-grandfather. 
So she actually um, got together with someone else and had another child. So uh, th that, that's probably not from prison. No, no. You know, Richard, at a certain point after he was arrested, you know, he said that he would confess if they just let her go. And the cops bought that. You know, flappers at the time, flappers gone bad, were kind of considered, well, you were swayed by a bad guy. And they kind of bought that with Richard and Margaret. So in exchange for Richard confessing, even though in the end he really didn't confess to too much, they decided not to prosecute Tiger Girl. So move forward a little bit. After Richard was gone, you know, Tiger Girl kind of recedes back into the working class life she came from. She ended up getting married to someone who was quite a bit older than she was, she ended up having a daughter and, by all accounts, lived a very, very quiet life. She didn't die until 1993. Um, you know, I don't identify her daughter in the book, even though I did track her down. She's quite elderly, and I, I didn't want to put any undue scrutiny onto her. Um, you know, that was just, I wanted to be respectful of someone's privacy. She was approached to contribute to the book, and she very politely declined. I really don't know how much she knew about her mother's past. I do know some other relatives for whom this entire book was an utter surprise. They'd know nothing about Margaret's past life. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a big surprise. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've all got skeletons in the closet, but this is a skeleton, right? Yeah. Oh, I let mine hang out um so so what was what was their big surprise like did you get any things when researching the book that you totally didn't expect i mean most of this was what i didn't expect i you know i didn't expect that they would be so successful i didn't expect that they would be so brazen and just operate without any thought of the future at all and there's some other interesting intersections i mean you know, Richard was hanging out at the Club Chantee, and he was having an affair with a 16-year-old girl. Her name was Laura Lee. She ended up, after the fact, becoming a Broadway star and, a, and appearing in several films with Joey Brown, and then later started the USO. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, where does this come from? How do these intersections happen? Um, you know, there's just no way of telling. I mean, one of the people that Richard killed another gangster, and I didn't put this in the book, but I just thought it was funny. I researched, you know, what happened to his family. His son became a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can have this crazy jazz age life, and a generation or a decade later, it's all evaporated, just as the 1920s evaporated. And the Depression hit home, and everyone had to resume a normal life. And for those that survived it, that's exactly what they did. I don't know if you just referred to him or not, but um, there was a gang member. I think it was uh, Joe Ross who was uh, shot to death three days after a robbery. And I was just wondering if you know who killed him and um, uh, or, well, or Ross, how he was killed. Yeah, Joe Ross, uh, that's in the Wikipedia listing. And quite frankly, I never came across Joe Ross in all my research. Ah. I know that Richard killed a couple of other gangsters. I don't know where the Joe Ross story came from. Okay. I mean, he was lightly referred to. He was never a member of the gang. I just think that's Wikipedia research where, you know, before this book, the only thing that had ever been written about the Whittemores, except for period reporting, is about six or eight pages in a book that was probably taken mostly from the New York Times or from other secondary sources, and they were utterly useless to me. Anything written about them um, passed about 1940, um, and there was very little written about them after 1940. Um, you know, it was utterly useless to me. It's secondhand, thirdhand reporting. Uh, I go back to the primary sources. Now, he did kill some other gangsters. He killed a guy named Cy Gildon. When Richard was on the run, he was sending money back to his father, 
And he was sending money back to Cy Gildan to give to Margaret. In fact, he bought a Cadillac for Cy Gildan to give to Margaret. Cy Gildan never gave the Cadillac to Margaret. <laughs> Once Richard Whittemore found this out, guess what? He tracked down Cy Gildan, and Cy Gildan was found shot in the courtyard of the Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan with full of bullet holes. Wow. <laughs> it did not wasn't a smart idea to cross <laughs> Richard Whittemore because once he killed for the first time, which was at the only bank robbery that the gang uh, perpetrated, which was in Buffalo, and two uh, armored car guards from a Federal Reserve delivery were killed. Once Richard killed or was involved in killing the first time, then he seemed to view killing as the solution to his troubles. He killed a guard when he was escaping from prison. He shot another gangster who he thought was making a play on Margaret. He killed Cy Gildan. He might have killed a couple of other people. It's kind of murky because he was never charged. The only you know murder he was ever charged, well, he was charged with the two, uh, but was acquitted for the two guards in Buffalo, and he was charged and found guilty for killing the guard during his escape. He was never charged in any of the other crimes. Uh, he also might have killed a, uh, uh, one of their big heists just before it went down when they were robbing this jeweler on the street, Albert Goodvish, of what might have been up to about a half million dollars worth of diamonds. Just before the crime went down, Richard spots somebody on the street, and he says to one of the other gang members, watch that guy. He looks like a bull meaning a cop, and in fact, it was a recently retired cop who was working a private security detail. The crime goes down. Guess what? That cop disappears a few weeks later, and a few months later is found in the river in New York dead. I wow. suspect that Richard Whittemore probably took care of him. The newspapers at the time printed his address, so if he was worried about being identified, it seems likely to me that Richard probably killed him. So, you know, he killed at least one guy, maybe as many as seven. There's no way to tell. Well, and it's, it's, good, it's good that you're going to primary sources and stuff, right? I mean, uh, it makes it a better book. I mean, Wikipedia... Well, there's, no, there's no other way to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you're just, otherwise, you're just kind of making things up. Yeah, and Wikipedia still has me listed as an 85-year-old sailor from Britain. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I mean, you can only go so far in relying on that sort of thing, you know. Um, so when someone picks up this book, they take it home, read it. Is there something you want them to get out of the book? Is there a subtext? Well, I think the subtext is there's actually quite a bit of resonance to today in the book. You know, I mean... If you're a younger person today, this is something that's really surprised me, is, is uh, younger women, millennial women, have really responded to the book so far. They really identify with Margaret. I think they see in her story, they see kind of a larger woman's story. Here's a woman with no options. What's she going to do? She's young. She's part of a generation that's coming out of a war, coming out of a pandemic, going into a terrible economic situation. As a woman, she can't get a job. She really has no choice but to hook up with a guy. Uh, and a lot of women in the 1920s, you know, birth control was available for the first time. They were able to, you know, have their own destiny. They were able to have relationships without having children. And they see Margaret as kind of a product of her time who, you know, isn't quite as responsible as Richard. I think it's also a book that, that gives you a different picture of the 1920s than you might have if all you've read is F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, Richard, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about the, the ennui of the upper class when they had everything. Well, Richard and Margaret wanted to have everything. Ennui was not part of their psyche. Uh, they would not have understood that at all. They looked at the people who had it all and wanted to be them. They wanted to have it all. Any talk of, you know, life being empty because you have too much um, was totally alien to them. They'd come from nothing. They weren't, uh, you know, they weren't these upper-class people trying to find meaning in life. They were trying to survive, and they were trying to live the best life they could and have as much fun as they could. 
Um, so I, I think that, you know, those are some of the reasons that I think the stories, you know, resonated with, uh, with a lot of readers so far. So now do you have a uh, website or a place that people can come find out more about you and uh, maybe sure. a phone number or address? <laughs> yeah. Uh, go to Glenn Stout, Glenn with two N's, stout like what you drink, dot com, and you can find out uh, way too much about me there. Um, I also have a Facebook page for Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, and on Twitter I'm at Glenn Stout, and, you know, I'm happy to uh, speak to book clubs and, and do things like that. Uh, you know, I enjoy interacting with readers. I enjoy talking about the book and, and getting reactions from other people. Um, you know, and particularly, you know, hey, coming out of a pandemic, it's, it's kind of nice to have a little bit of human interaction with, uh, with readers. So, so I look forward to all of that. Yeah, and we'll make sure we get some of the best. Uh, we, <laughs> we will have it linked to our website as well, of course, and that. So, hey, and I noticed this, this, this just came out not too long ago, hey, just March 30th. So in the writing of this um, with the pandemic, did it sort of get in the way or was it sort of a, made, did it make it harder? Um, you know, the book was basically done um, before the pandemic hit. There were a few odds and ends that I would have liked to pursue a little bit more that I couldn't because, you, you know, archives closed and things like that. One of the funny things is when I was, was trying to get pictures for it and all the photo archives were closed. Um, and I had some photographs, but I knew there were some more out there. And I got really lucky because I, I spoke to a, a rep for, for Getty, which is the big photo archive service. And they own the Bettman Archive, which is a, an older uh, photo archive. But the Bettman Archive is kept, I think it's 50 miles outside Pittsburgh, 200 feet underground in like an old salt <laughs> mine. And it was closed. And I got so lucky because this, this lovely woman with Getty, I kind of schmoozed her. She got in touch with the people from the Bettman Archive. And for me, they went into the Bettman Archive which was closed in the middle of the pandemic. They went down 200 feet, and they found some fabulous pictures of Richard and Margaret Whittemore. Um, that was really, really terrific. Um, the book was delayed a little bit because of, uh, partially because of the pandemic, partially because of some minor health issues I had. And I'll tell you one funny story, because I do think it's funny. But I think it speaks to how remarkable the story is. When I first turned the book into my publisher, um, they sent me an email that said, um, we don't think we can publish this. We think you made everything up. <laughs> and uh, after, after my primal scream and after <laughs> I picked my jaw up off the floor and after about 1,200 endnotes, um, you know, I think they realized that's not the case. You know, nothing in this story is made up. Every quote is from a source. Um, you know, I don't make things up. I just think they looked at the story and thought it was so unbelievable. And we've never heard of these people. How in the hell did you come up with all of it? Right. Well, it took 15 years on and off. And, it, you know, you sit there and you look at a lot of microfilm <laughs> and you read <laughs> every single story you can about these people to do that kind of 3D printer layering and create this story. And you read about the texture and the culture of the times. And you try to see how they fit in, how they intersect with the movies of the time period and the music of the time period and the clothing and all that. And, you know, and when you do that, you are able to create a real story, a real narrative about what actually happened. Yeah, and it's real important to bring in the the time period and, and how things were really um, happening then rather than leaving it out. Like, I think that's really important because you got to give the context. Otherwise, people uh, nowadays wouldn't understand it. Right. We're, we're in kind of an ahistorical age where people aren't really savvy to what was taking place, you know, historically. So you, you almost have to reteach the 1920s. Um, to people who, who might only know the 1920s from The Great Gatsby or maybe some really bad film they watched. Um, uh, that's, that's part of the fun is that you're, while you're telling a story, 
you're also kind of opening up this world for people that they might not be familiar with. And, and I just think that the 1920s is, is just incredibly rich time period to write about. The Trudy Utterly story takes place in 1925, 1926, where much of this story does. Uh, and many of the sports books I've written about intersect with the 1920s. So I keep going back to that mine, and I keep finding things there. I keep finding gems there, you know. Yeah. It's like, uh, and knowing this story was there for so long, it was like, I know it's in the safe. I got to find a way to get into it, and I got to get it out of the safe where people can see it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. Um, what do you got next? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm waiting for another story to kind of pique my interest. Um, there's some anticipation for the Gertrude Ederly film, so I'm kind of waiting on that a little bit. But more than anything, I'm I'm waiting to see if another story will pique my interest. I'm kicking around a few things, but um, um, there's nothing, you know, right on the table now. I mean, I edit an annual anthology of sports writing, so I've, I've got some, some things to do, and I do some consulting with uh, other writers and on book manuscripts and book proposals and things like that. So I'm not just, uh, you know, sitting on my hands in northern Vermont waiting for it to snow next week. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we'll see. You know, I, I, I like I like the kind of organic process where a book finds you um, as much as you finding a book. And I, I guess I'm kind of waiting for the next book to find me. Well, I don't I don't think anyone's written about Kim Kardashian yet. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I mean, you, you beat know. me to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I guess know. I can't say that. Darn, you beat me to it. Darn. Well, no, you can have it, please. You hear it now. You can have it. It's all yours. Uh, well, this has been amazing. We've, we've learned a lot. My God. We, what did we learn? Glenn Stout likes to be probed by Hollywood. And, <laughs> and he's going to write about Kim Kardashian next. There you, there you go. <laughs> 120s to the nether, you know. Uh, well, it's been great. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know you're busy with your hands on under your seat and waiting, waiting for the next book to come. Actually, so. tomorrow, tomorrow I head out to Texas to CrimeCon. Oh, I do, no. You're doing that? Oh. I'm doing CrimeCon, yes. <laughs> so if I, if I don't come back, <laughs> um, you know, there's probably, you know, there's a couple of thousand middle-aged women who are, would be likely suspects to have, like, killed me while I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a rough crowd, and I'll tell you, um, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> giving, you, giving you my love there. Wow. Well, like I said, if I, if I don't emerge, you, you, you know where to find me, Some, somewhere in a lake in Austin. Yeah, so that means I'll have to write the Kim Kardashian story. Well, there you go. Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Well, our guest, Glenn Stout, thank you for being here. And uh, if you want to go see him, he'll be at the Austin Crime Con. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.